Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kellen, it's always interesting to me to view the different ways that different people think about collapse. You know, every single mind is different and every person processes information differently and every person has a different level of being able to understand or conceptualize what collapse is, what's behind it, and what it will lead to. And the reason I bring that up is I think there's a lot of people out there who view collapse as a very sort of black and white thing that right now we are not in a collapsed society and one day we will be in a collapsed society. And there's a lot of people who comment on like the subreddit or on Twitter or social media or whatever, who I think do so pretty ignorantly in a way to make it sound like everybody's situation in collapse is going to be the same. And I've seen people called out recently, for example, for specifically sort of Americanizing collapse. There was a Reddit post where someone basically went through and named all the reasons why collapse might be less bad than people talk about. And like the main comments on that post were, well, it's clear here that you're an American because you're, everything you're saying sounds like it's coming from an American sort of privileged lens. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. And I know for me, as I've been going through this journey over the last, what, almost two years, my perception and understanding of collapse continues to evolve. The word itself, collapse, makes it sound like an event, which if you zoom out far enough and you're looking at it from like the perspective of all of human history, yeah, collapse 
is happening and will continue to happen in a relatively short period of time. But for us, we're talking about decades, right? And so when it starts to dawn on you that like, instead of thinking or saying, yeah, when collapse does happen, or when we get to the point where collapse takes place, when, when you start to realize it's already underway and we're just gradually working our way into it, then you can look around and say like, well, is the situation today the same for everybody? Clearly not. Some people are, are at a huge disadvantage compared to others. And yeah, those of us in developed nations, especially the United States, have it much better than people who are in developing nations or uh, parts of the world where lots of awful things are happening, at least by comparison. And I mean, that can be seen so clearly in the fact that there are countries that are currently collapsed or collapsing, right? We talked about this recently in two different episodes. It highlights the fact that not everyone will collapse at the same time and not everyone will collapse in the same way or at the same rate. We also can't use specific sort of absolute terms when talking about collapse either in saying things like the U.S. will collapse last, right? Or the U.S. will hold out longer than anywhere else. Well, that's not necessarily true. There will be people or areas within the U.S. that won't. Or in some ways, the U.S. might fall harder than other places, the fact of the matter is it's an extremely complicated thing that we're talking about here. You know, systems thinking, it is so big and truly impossible to predict. But I think today's episode is mainly to highlight some of the ways in which collapse is going to impact certain people more than others and show at least where some of that disparity will lie. Yeah, there's so much to talk about here. And I think it's a really important discussion to have. And I'm really excited because you will have lots of important insights, Corey. But for this episode, I kind of get to take the reins. And as we dive into it, let's just be very clear about something. Life is not fair. Like everywhere you look, you know, we're starting to talk about that already here in this episode. But some people just have a harder lot in life than others. And typically those who are at a disadvantage in one way are going to also be disadvantaged in other ways. Right? So you think about the fact that somebody is in poverty, for example. Well, because they're in poverty, they're potentially in kind of a rough neighborhood and they don't get as well educated and they don't have as many opportunities at healthcare and taking care of themselves. And, you know, you, you can just add to the list thing after thing after thing that makes somebody disadvantaged in kind of a compounded way simply because of one key factor. So you end up with all these factors that overlap and it's a sad fact of life that people who already have it hard get hit the hardest by, you know, catastrophes and disasters. And you could say, you know, that there are some disasters that don't discriminate. Like if a giant meteor strikes the city where you live, the rich and the poor are both going to perish. But even in, in, in a most extreme example like that, the rich would probably have better opportunities at being informed that the meteor is coming and having methods of quickly traveling to another part of the globe or in don't look up you could just fly to another planet where yeah you're gonna get eaten by alien dinosaurs but you got to live at least that much longer <laughs> kellen still has not seen that movie by the way folks i mean now that you've said alien dinosaurs you've piqued my interest you got you gotta watch it and also meryl streep's rear end so there's that there's what <laughs> you're just leaving that out there is well, now you have to watch it. <laughs> like that's not a full sentence. I don't know what you're trying to say. 
I mean, does Meryl Streep's rear end need a full sentence? <laughs> Let's move on. All right. Okay, we sometimes talk about the ultra-wealthy, or we'll talk about the ultra-impoverished, but most people are somewhere in the middle. So it's important to understand, you know, who is going to be hit the hardest by the coming chaos, but it's also important for us, as we have this conversation, to all be thinking about where we land on that scale of vulnerability so we can know best how to prepare. And remember, most of collapse won't be sudden disasters, right? It it will be declining economies and crumbling governments and prolonged conflicts and, you know, gradually increasing rates of famine that will all take a long time. So even in the case of a sudden disaster, like most major weather events don't wipe out entire cities. In fact, even in a severe natural disaster, most people survive. And so again, although disasters, natural disasters are a part of these ongoing problems, the most vulnerable to collapse are generally the people that are just most vulnerable to life. And we can look at a lot of things. I I mentioned rich and poor, right? But it's not just your financial situation, your socioeconomic status, also your age, your health, both your physical health and your mental health, your family size, your level of education, your social network, your belief system, your minority status, like all of this plays a significant part in how vulnerable you are. And I know, Corey, we're excited to, in the future, present kind of a a framework for how you can customize a plan of preparedness and resilience based on where you land and all those different factors. And something else that's in my mind, really important to call out is just that there's this extreme sense of irony that the wealthy people and wealthy nations that are contributing the most to like climate change, for example, are the ones who are most shielded or protected from it. And it's the ones who aren't causing it that are going to be hit hardest by it. Yeah, that's sort of the cruel irony of the whole thing is that while yes, collapse will be faced by everyone, the ones who really are responsible for it, who have spent decades or into centuries now benefiting from the comfort and luxury that technology brings, well, those same technologies are going to wreak havoc, and they're going to wreak havoc most likely, and in most cases, first on the people who never got to experience those things. Wealthy nations already do so much to infringe on developing nations through imperialism, through exploitation and all these different things already outside of collapse. But it's just unfortunate to know that in collapse, that injustice is going to worsen. Yeah, so let's take a look at some of the numbers around this. Corey, a couple of years ago, in 2019, there was a Stanford University study that found that climate change has increased economic inequality between developed and developing nations by 25% since 1960. So sometimes we talk about the widening wealth gap that's happening with like individuals. You know, we, we've we made several comments about how the billionaires during COVID just made that many more billions. But sometimes we forget that that's also happening with nations. So we're seeing this widening wealth gap between nations. And by the way, some of these facts and figures are going to focus on climate change in particular. Obviously, there's a lot of different aspects of collapse, but the impact of climate change is perhaps one of the easiest to point to and and measure. 
So here's something, Corey, I'd, I'd love to hear your reaction to, your thoughts on. This is from a BBC article. It was published a year ago, August 2021. It's called Climate Change, Low-Income Countries Can't Keep Up With Impacts. And it says, a study by the International Institute of Environment and Development published last month suggests that the 46 of the world's least developed countries don't have the financial means to climate-proof themselves. The IIED says that countries need at least $40 billion a year for their adaptation plans. But between 2014 and 2018, just $5.9 billion of adaptation finance was received. Yeah, so these countries are receiving like, what's that, a seventh of the amount of money that they need in order to even begin to climate-proof themselves. And it sort of begs the question, where should that money be coming from? It's the world's wealthiest nations that are causing all the issues. It seems just and fair that those countries would be the ones footing the bill to help other countries, at the very least, prepare. But yet, in so many of the wealthy countries, you don't even see climate change mitigation or preparation being a priority within that own country, let alone trying to pay restitution to other countries. Yeah, and it's hard to prioritize whether in a developed or an underdeveloped nation whether it's a rich country or a poor country, when there are so many other problems happening, right? That, that's kind of the whole premise of what we've talked about here with collapse is that it's catabolic. There's just issue after issue. And so when climate change is something that happens gradually, as a country, you're probably going to put your resources towards what's happening right here and now. One quote from the article, this is from somebody named Carlos Aguilar, who's a climate adaptation expert. He's talking about these poor countries and he says, when you have other issues like bad governance, poverty, and now COVID, it becomes very difficult for the plans to work. They simply aren't a government's priority. And to me, it's interesting because we talk about how the United States, for example, you know, one of the wealthiest nations in the world is just seeing more and more debt and is in kind of an interesting, I would, I would say financial predicament as we look at the coming decades. But those financial issues are nothing compared to a lot of these struggling nations. And when they already don't have the money to handle all the corruption and poverty and all the awful things that are taking place in, in the immediate forefront, like right in the present moment, how can they be expected to prepare for climate change? Which just tells me they're basically being set up to collapse faster and get hit harder by what we know is going to come. You know, I saw an interesting post on Reddit this last week. I don't remember what subreddit it was on. I don't remember exactly the contents, but I do remember there was a video. I should say it was a compilation of different photos. It wasn't a video showing the contrast of different areas of the world. So like on one side of the screen, it was the Statue of Liberty with its arm raised in the air, right? And it was sliced and another photo was adjoined to it of like a rebel military, someone holding an AK-47 in the air. So it looked like the Statue of Liberty was holding the AK-47 in the air. And there was just a bunch of photos like that. One was a baby laying on the floor in like a nice, clean home, happy baby. And you could see its face down to about its shoulders. But then from shoulders down, the other side of the photo was like an emaciated child in Africa. 
And so there was like 15 of these photos. It was It's from a Turkish photographer. And it just shows this stark contrast between different areas of the world and different lives that people live. And one of the comments that I thought was so interesting was it, it just said, it's just all about the respawn, bro. It said something like that, which is referring to like video games. If you play Call of Duty, you die in the game and you respawn somewhere random on the map. And often how well you're able to play is based on where you spawned on the map. And so it's just the idea, this idea that it's totally random where you're born and who you're born to and who you are and what your situation is. And like you said at the beginning of this episode, it's completely unfair. It's unfair that I was born where I was, when I was, in the situation that I was, compared to someone else who might be born on the other side of the world, suffering war and poverty and just, you know, untold suffering, or someone who was born 500 years ago who suffered plagues and diseases and, you know, authoritarian, whatever. My point is, it's all random. We are extremely lucky. But as you're talking about here, people who just happen to be born in other parts of the world where their governments cannot prepare for climate change and they're being worse affected by climate change, it's sort of a really sad and cruel aspect to this whole idea of collapse. And it's interesting when you describe that, it makes me think about some of the episodes we've had on coping and how part of coping is finding meaning and purpose and that there are a lot of different ways in which you can find purpose and even a lot of different ways it's defined. But one of those has to do with your belief system and whether or not you feel like things are just random or whether there's a design behind it or a purpose behind it. But I will say that living in Mexico at one point in my life, I was walking down the street one day and a man approached me. He was highly intoxicated, but he grabbed me like by the shoulders and, and we were face to face and he started shaking me and yelling. And he was yelling, like, why do you get to be born in America and I'm born here? He said some other things. Why, why do you get to be born with clear, bright eyes and I've got these dark eyes? And he was saying all these things, kind of alluding to what you're mentioning, that his lot in life was very disadvantaged compared to mine. You know, I ask myself every day as well, why did you get to be born with clear eyes and I had to be born with these dark eyes? <laughs> yeah, that's just what he said. <laughs> But that experience, not only physically, but also kind of emotionally shook me. And based on that and a number of other things that I saw and experienced there, it has left me with this kind of continual guilt to where occasionally, you know, if my wife and I get to go on a vacation, I have a hard time even enjoying it because I feel like it's just unfair. Like I feel guilty for getting to experience something that I know millions and even billions of people around the world will never get to experience. And my wife is wonderful. She, she has to kind of talk me through it and, and help me recognize that it's not productive to just always feel guilt and shame for having some advantages in life. But you can also find meaningful ways to try to level the playing field a little bit, right? And help those that are disadvantaged. Anyways, perhaps that's a bit of a tangent but I think it highlights that when you look at different parts of the world, we see this widening wealth gap between nations, which means that the poorer nations of the world cannot even fight the challenges they face today, nor prepare for the challenges that they know are coming tomorrow. There was a, a paper, a report published like 15 years ago. 
It's from the Policy Department Economic and Scientific Policy. <laughs> and it's called Climate Change Impacts on Developing Countries Dash EU Accountability. And this is, I mean, we're talking 15 years ago. And so they didn't have the updated climate models that we have today. As you know, Corey, every year we've heard this like faster than expected. Things are happening at an ever accelerating rate. And yet, even then, there was a statement that says climate change is likely to have a significant impact on the economies of developing countries. Without adaptation and mitigation, the losses are estimated to be up to 20% of GDP. And that seems low to me. <laughs> but when you've already got inequality and poverty in these nations, and their GDP is projected to decrease by what they said, 20% here. But with our accelerated climate crisis, it's likely going to be even more than that. Basically, you're going to see really awful things and a lot of suffering happening in the places that are already seeing a disproportionate amount of suffering. So it kind of takes me back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode around how not only will different areas of the world suffer differently based on the economic status of that entire country, but there will also be differences within countries as well, right? Like I mentioned in the US, for example, there will be people who will stay afloat much longer, who because of money or location or status, power, whatever that is, they will be able to have options that other people won't have. Is that right? Yeah, in fact, that's a really good segue into a report that was published in September of 2021. So less than a year ago, it was from the EPA. It's over a hundred pages long. Although, I mean, there's like a title page and pictures and graphs. <laughs> yeah, <there's laughs> Sources cited for like 15 pages, but it's called climate change and social vulnerability in the United States, a focus on six impacts. And what I love about this is yes, there's a lot of articles out there you know, there's a wide recognition that some people are going to be more impacted by climate change than others. But the EPA made this effort to actually like quantify that. So the way they looked at it, they said people are at risk of experiencing climate change impacts when, you know, two things happen, when, when they're exposed and when they are vulnerable to climate hazards. So the focus is on determining whether those who are socially vulnerable are disproportionately exposed to like climate hazards. And so you, you've used two terms here, exposed and vulnerable. Can you kind of define what the difference is between those two and how they interact? Yeah, there's some crossover there. But for example, if I'm in the latter decades of my life, let's say I'm 70 years old, I am more vulnerable to a heat wave. Like that's going to be more dangerous for me than somebody who's younger and healthier. But am I at risk of actually being exposed to that? Do I live in an area that will experience more heat waves? Got it. So another example could be if you are, for example, a certain race, that could be a vulnerability. Then exposure would be being in a location, for example, that would be impacted by certain natural disasters caused by climate change. Yes, exactly. And in fact, both of these examples are brought up. So they look at four groups. They look at low income individuals and they define that by living in households with income that is at or below 200% of the poverty level. They look at minority individuals. So you brought up race. Uh, they identify that as black or African-American, American Indian, 
or Alaska Native, Asian, Native Hawaiian, or other Pacific Islander, and or Hispanic or Latino. So that's two of them. The third one is no high school diploma. They're looking at individuals ages 25 and older with a maximum educational attainment of less than a high school diploma or equivalent. And then the last group is 65 and older individuals. So they set out to, you know, come through all the research and figure out, are these four groups going to be more heavily impacted by certain aspects of climate change? And the aspects of climate change that, that they're looking at, they've got six categories. One is air quality and health. And with that, they're looking at new asthma diagnoses in children aged 0 to 17 due to particulate air pollution and premature deaths in adults ages 65 and older due to particulate air pollution. Right. So one thing I love about this report is they got very specific. Like it's not just a general statement. If they actually want to know what the results are, they specify the parameters. So air quality and health. There's also extreme temperature and health. There's extreme temperature and labor. And I wasn't sure what that one was, but it says labor hours lost by weather exposed workers due to high temperature days. Uh, there's coastal flooding and traffic. So traffic delays due to like high tide flooding and extreme temperature and extreme precipitation. There's coastal flooding and property. So that has to do with property inundation due to sea level rise and exclusion from protective adaptation measures. And then the last one is inland flooding and property. And that one's property damage or loss due to inland flooding. So Corey, do you have all that? <laughs> We've got the four groups. Low income, minority, no high school diploma, 65 and older. And then they're looking at air quality and health, extreme temperature and health, extreme temperature and labor, coastal flooding and traffic, coastal flooding and property, and inland flooding and property. Got it. All right. So a lot of the paper describes like their methodology and it dives into a lot of the specifics based on certain regions. But I just want to share some of the general findings. And I think it highlights exactly what we've been talking about. So this one is interesting. Of the four socially vulnerable groups examined, minorities are most likely to currently live in areas where the analyses project the highest levels of climate change impacts with two degrees Celsius of global warming or 50 centimeters of global sea level rise. And that's just a really wordy way of saying like of those four groups, it's minorities that are in the most at-risk areas. And Corey, I actually sent you some of the numbers related to this that I thought were really fascinating. Any that stood out to you? Yeah, it blew me away that the percentage increase or, or how much more likely minorities were to suffer from these different variables, like it was not small. It's a huge percentage. So for example, I'll just read a couple of these. It says black and African-American individuals are 40% more likely than non-black and non-African-American individuals to currently live in areas with the highest projected increases in mortality rates due to climate-driven changes in extreme temperatures. So we're talking 40%. Some others, Hispanic and Latino individuals, were 43% more likely than non-Hispanic and non-Latino individuals to currently live in areas with the highest projected labor hour losses in weather-exposed industries due to high temperature days, and 50% more likely to live in coastal areas with the highest projected increases in traffic delays from high tide flooding. Some of the other groups it talked about, American Indian and Alaska Native individuals, they were 48% more likely to live in areas where the highest percentage of land is projected to be inundated due to sea level rise, and Asian individuals are 23% more likely than non-Asian individuals 
to experience projected increases in traffic delays from high tide flooding. So these percentages, you know, ranging anywhere from 23 to 50% more likely, those are substantial numbers. And again, ones that I do not believe the U.S. government is working towards trying to rectify. And it goes back to that initial statement I made. Like when I hear that, it just reiterates the fact that life is not fair. And it truly is unfair that minority groups are living in areas where they are more exposed, right? They're already more vulnerable in some ways. And so to me, this is really unfortunate. They did find that some of these groups that we're talking about actually aren't necessarily going to be more impacted. Like for example, they said in general, adults ages 65 and older are not projected to be significantly more likely than younger individuals to currently live in areas with the highest projected impacts of climate change. So looking at those two variables, when it talks about exposure and vulnerability, basically what you're saying is they're just as likely as anyone else to live in exposed areas, but deaths of elderly people due to like heat waves will still be higher because they are more vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. So they're more vulnerable, but they're not going to be more exposed than the general population. Whereas some of those stats that you read, you know, some of these minority groups are going to be more exposed. Right. You can think of it like New Orleans, right? With a majority African-American population is in a very low-lying area that will be highly impacted by tidal waves, rising sea levels, hurricanes, that type of thing. I'm curious, I don't know that we've heard any numbers yet, or if you have any there, where it talks about income levels. Was that a severe indicator of like future vulnerability? It is, and it's tough to parse it out. You know, they, they go into some detail, but if you are African-American, for example, you are at a higher likelihood of being below the poverty line. So like I said before, there's some crossover here, but one statement from their findings says those with low income or no high school diploma are approximately 25% more likely than non-low income individuals and those with a high school diploma to currently live in areas with the highest projected losses of labor hours due to increases in high temperature days with two degrees Celsius of global warming. And that sounds like a, a positive feedback loop, right? If the poorest of people who need the money the most to survive are being affected most in their ability to perform labor to get paid, then it's a sort of chain reaction that continues sort of exacerbating that poverty. Yeah, these individuals who are already disadvantaged just become more and more disadvantaged. This one was interesting to me, this this other fact I'm about to read or this figure, because I don't typically think about traffic delays when I think of climate change and all the impacts of it. But they say minorities are 41% more likely than non-minorities to currently live in areas with the highest projected increases in traffic delays from high tide flooding associated with a 50 centimeter of global sea level rise. So basically minorities are in areas that are, are going to be more likely to experience traffic delays. And I think it's important to point out that obviously traffic delays are not among the worst consequences of climate change. And I think that's not what this report is trying to say, but it does give a tangible sort of figure and number to view different ways in which different people will be impacted. And those impacts can be extrapolated right out into other consequences. I also think it's important to note that, like like we mentioned, this report is specifically talking about the intersection of vulnerability 
and exposure. And while we might say that in some ways, lower income people are going to be more exposed to disasters, well, in a lot of ways, they may be just as exposed as a wealthy person. But because they are more vulnerable, looking outside of this report, if we just look at vulnerability, minorities, those in poverty, older generations, because there is so much more vulnerability there, as climate change worsens all over, again, those in a more prosperous position, in a more favorable position, are going to fare much better than those who have these vulnerabilities. And here we're just talking about climate change. And there are so many other issues. It makes me think of when Russia invaded Ukraine and all these people were trying to get out of the country, that there were certain individuals of, of particular racial or ethnic groups that were being treated unfairly by other Ukrainians as they were trying to board trains to leave the country. Like here we're talking about in America, how black and African-American individuals are going to be more exposed to the, the challenges that we anticipate with climate change. And yet you look at the last couple of years and all of the attention around systemic racism and social justice and the injustice that's out there and all the Black Lives Matter marches and protests, like it highlights that already you've got people who are at a disadvantage in life because of the way our systems are set up, even if we weren't anticipating all these aspects of collapse to happen. But with each one of these, it's like people get kicked while they're already down. They get the short end of the stick, right? Yeah, I think it kind of highlights that what we're talking about here is nothing revelatory necessarily. It's pretty intuitive to see that right now, the people who we're talking about, minorities, low income, older generations, whatever it may be, they're already more vulnerable. They're more vulnerable to the things already happening in the world from a systemic view. And so, of course, as things get harder, it's going to impact them the most. And the point of this is not to like scare you if you are in one of the groups that we've been talking about, but I think that it is important for everyone, no matter what station in life you've been given, to understand what people are going to face, to understand that there is a difference between where you're at and where someone else is at. And like Helen mentioned earlier, as we prepare to dive into a new podcast at some point discussing those different variables. It's important to know where you're at so you can know best how to position yourself. What steps can you take to aid in your own preparation? For some people, frankly, it's just going to be harder. It's just going to take more. When I think of preparation and resiliency, it's unfortunate because it's the same sort of cruel injustice to say that a poorer person may need to spend more to be as prepared as someone who is wealthy, right? Or spend more time or, or whatever that is. But, but I think it's important that we are honest with ourselves, each of us, about where we are. You know, if we are in a, a disadvantaged group, that we recognize that, that we're honest with ourselves about that, so that we can, from there, take a serious look at what we can do to sort of give ourselves the best chances at the most comfort and success going forward, right? Or if we are in a privileged position, we can take a look at not only what advantages does that offer us, but also how can we use that to try and help others. And we are not even going to dive into the idea of how to use privilege to help disadvantaged groups because there's so much to that. There's a lot of stigma around that. And frankly, I wouldn't even know where to begin. 
All I can think of is Bo Burnham's song about American white guys trying to use their privilege for good. Very cool. Way to go. (laughs) He says sarcastically. But anyway, like I do, I do feel this desire to build community, to help people where I can. But I have to admit that when it comes to knowing exactly what I should be doing to lend a hand to someone who's disadvantaged, I, I don't know. Well, Corey, you introduced me to a phrase when we first started having these collapse conversations that I found really funny. We haven't brought it up a lot since then, but apparently it comes up all the time in the collapse subreddit and it's eat the rich. And I'm here thinking about a recent bonus episode that we did for our Patreon subscribers, where we talked about all the backlash that celebrities are getting for flying around on private jets and emitting insane amounts of greenhouse gases. The fact of the matter is that Taylor Swift is never going to have to feel the impacts of collapse the way that you are. There are so many resources there. Even if her primary home got destroyed, well, she's got plenty of others. (laughs) Or if the price of bread went up to $1,000 a loaf, she would buy bread without even thinking about it. Right. And if, you know, there was something that she somehow needed but like couldn't afford in cash at the moment she's got so many assets that she could find a way to trade or sell something or whatever like there's just she's never going to have to really feel it and yet there are a lot of people out there that are already feeling it so i know this plays into like what's going to happen as people become more desperate if it's the middle of winter and your power is out and you're struggling to survive, and you see that the richer folks on the other side of the railroad tracks have their lights on, you know, the more desperate you get, the more likely there's going to be some confrontation. And, And we've talked about how in times of disaster, people generally help each other out and do good. But those are times of like sudden immediate disaster. When it's prolonged and gradual, and it's this constant grind, I think that can lead to desperation. We've highlighted here that hopefully this helps as you you start to try to think where you land on that scale of vulnerability and also exposure to hazardous events. But outside of that, I do want to say the only thing that we are ever prescriptive on, we, we don't tell you what to do on this podcast. The only thing that we unashamedly repeat is just be kind to people. Like it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be that because you fall into one of these categories you're going to have to suffer more than other people. And so the more we can find little ways here and there to ease the suffering, at least that's a start. You know, one thing that we didn't mention much, but I think is really important is the fact that in many situations, the wealthy will be better off because of choices made by those in charge to make it that way. I think back to Texas during the freeze and how power had to be cut and they were able to have power in some places, but not others. And power was prioritized in the wealthier neighborhoods. So people living in the poorer parts of the city are looking over, like you just said, across the railroad tracks at their neighbors whose lights are on in the wealthy district. And of course that causes contention, right? Like you're mentioning. But I I think it's important to note that, that much of the distinction there, much of the void that's created is a man-made one by those in charge deciding who gets what. So like you're saying, the more that we choose to be kind and to give and to engage in mutual aid 
the more we engage with our neighbors of whatever demographic, right, the more we're able to build up community and real community and trust. I think the more we can avoid those types of things happening. And I really do think that it will be the communities that are able to come together instead of allowing themselves to be split apart over things like that to be resilient in times of collapse.